Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Today's CBS Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Tough Shed. Start dreaming of a backyard season and how great it could be with a durable, attractive new shed, studio, or garage from Tough Shed. Use our online design tool at toughshed.com, then let our building experts handle the final details, delivery, and installation. Nobody has what Tough Shed has. Make this the year of your backyard. Give us a call, stop in, or design online at toughshed.com. Dream, design, and build with Tough Shed. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The Independence Day weekend is winding down. With the parades and speeches and fireworks behind us, there's just enough time left for that one last barbecue. Of course, for most of us, barbecue means meat. Or does it? We're calling our cover story, Where's the Beef? And it comes to us from Allison Aubrey. In this age of artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and, well, you know, at least we still have the good old-fashioned American hamburger. Or not. It's really flavorful, it's fatty, it really kind of tastes like the real thing. Yep, that, that's what we think too. Ahead on Sunday morning, a new twist on a summer classic. What could be scarier than a monster truck? Our Luke Burbank taming the beast behind the wheel. Monster trucks, those big, bouncy, very American contribution to motorsport are actually extremely hard to drive, as I found out when I attended Monster Jam University. All right, Luke, are you all right? We'll take a not-so-leisurely Sunday drive. That's later on Sunday morning. Then it's on to a more leisurely means of travel, a journey down the Mississippi. Maraca is our guide. We've been 1,500 miles so far, and we have about uh, 450 miles left. It's still seriously important economically and culturally, musically, all sorts of ways, and it's just a, a beautiful piece of nature. A voyage down the magnificent Mississippi, ahead on Sunday morning. Michelle Miller has the rags-to-riches story of designer Dapper Dan. Jim Gaffigan defends the good old-fashioned cheeseburger, and more. All coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. 
where's the beef? That advertising pitch from the 1980s is suddenly exactly the right question. As you're about to discover, thanks to Allison Aubrey of NPR. At the Oakland A's Coliseum, there's a new twist on a summer classic. Next in line, I And Julia Green is about to get her first taste. I have mixed feelings about this plant burger, but all right, here it goes. This is the Impossible Burger. It doesn't taste like plants. <laughs> so it tastes like the real thing? It does, I'm spooked. It looks, cooks, even bleeds like the real thing. Michelin star restaurants are serving it up, and so is Burger King. The guy behind it is a scientist. Pat Brown is a former professor at Stanford. You know, I've been talking to people about you, some of your fellow scientists. Uh -oh. The first words that came out were brilliant, the real deal. Brown helped revolutionize the way genes are studied, but during a sabbatical, he decided to shake things up even more, to pick what he thought was the most important problem in the world that he could help solve. Once I started looking into it very quickly, I realized that the problem was the destructive environmental impact of our use of animals and food technology. Meat production is a leading cause of deforestation. More than a quarter of all the usable land on the globe is used to graze livestock. On top of this, about one third of all cropland is used to grow food, not for people, but for these animals. In fact, it takes about seven pounds of feed to produce a single pound of beef. Now, Pat Brown knew people would never give up on the taste of meat, so he set out to recreate it. His eureka moment came when he and his team found the very thing that gives beef its beefy taste. It's an iron-containing molecule called heme. It is super abundant in animals, and turns out plants have it too. Brown's idea was to get heme from the roots of soybeans. It looks just like blood. If you tasted it, it actually tastes just like blood. Can because... I stick my finger in there? Yeah, why not? Go right. ahead. Yeah, it's like when you skin your knee and you, yep, yeah, tastes the, like blood. So the heme in blood is what gives raw meat its bloody taste. But the thing that was more surprising in a way is that it's what causes the magic to happen when you cook meat. This? is really the secret sauce of the Impossible Burger. Along with a mix of vegetable proteins and fats, the heme is the catalyst that helps produce all the flavor and aroma of cooked beef. We feed plants to cows, and cows turn those plants into meat. We are just getting rid of that middle cow. Laura Kleiman is the senior flavor scientist at Impossible Foods. Voila. It's her job to make sure the burgers taste great. All right, now comes the fun part. Now comes the fun part. Ooh, I like that. Nice Bloody juice, middle. Yeah, yeah, juicy burger. Very juicy. Let's see. Wow. I don't know that I'd be able to tell the difference. Yeah, that's the goal. The company is in the midst of a big scale up. If all goes as planned, they'll be in Burger Kings nationwide by the end of the year, and eventually you'll be able to buy the Impossible Burger in grocery stores. But say you just really don't want to give up on real meat. 
Another company has a completely different approach. You ready for this? They want to grow meat in a laboratory. I think in a handful of years, the majority of the meat made on this planet won't require killing a single animal. Josh Tetrick is CEO of Just, a food company based in San Francisco. You are trying to grow meat in big vats. Well, at the root of it, we're trying to help people eat better. All we do is to say, you know what? You don't need billions of animals. You don't need all this land in the water. You need a couple cells from the best animals. So you're basically saying that you don't need to slaughter the cow to get great tasting beef. No, why would you have to? Well, that's the way it's been done for thousands of years. Well, for us, this is just a natural evolution and more efficiency. Tetrick gave us a peek at his process. You see these cells? These are cells from a chicken. When they're fed with this mix of liquid nutrients and put in a tank like this one, they divide and grow. And two weeks later, according to Just... Right, so now I'm going to show you our cultured chicken. Voila. So this is the chicken that grew in the cells right here in this lab. Exactly. So this is ground chicken, but this is how it looks like. So you're asking me to be your guinea pig. I would love you to be my guinea pig. All right, let's try it. So what does it taste like? Tastes like a chicken nugget. Need some more. What is the cost of one? Like a hundred bucks? Um, up a little bit. I'd say a thousand dollars. Say about two hundred bucks. All right, this is a two hundred dollar chicken nugget. Well, there's not really a set price since the meat isn't even for sale yet. But eventually, the goal is to make it affordable. When are you going to be selling the cell-based meat at the grocery store? I think we'll have a small-scale commercialization before the end of the year. Actually, it'll likely be years before cell-based meat is sold in the U.S., but back at Impossible Foods, Pat Brown insists the future is now. So you're going to be able to move beyond the burger? Oh, of course. We've already made steak prototypes. Fish? We're definitely going to do it. Fish for sure. And he says every day they get a little better at it. So do you think that you're going to be putting the conventional meat business out of business? That's the whole purpose of Impossible Foods. The you purpose of Impossible gone. Foods is this industry and this technology is the greatest threat to the future of our planet, period. He is taming the beast. Luke Burbank, that is, proving that anyone can drive a monster truck. Or maybe not. If you turned on a TV in the 1980s, you couldn't miss them. Monster trucks in side-by-side drag racing action. Monster trucks coming to an arena near you. They promise to sell you the whole seat, but you'd only need the edge. It's Crash Arema. And the edgiest of them all was definitely Grave Digger. Featuring the return of the baddest monster in the country, Grave Digger. So, when Monster Jam, the folks that owned the truck these days, gave me the chance to actually drive the, yes, the Grave Digger, there was no way I was turning them down. Even if it meant I might be digging my own grave. How many flips realistically will I be able to do by the end of today? It's going to be challenging for you to do any. Tom Mentz runs Monster Jam University out behind his house in Paxton, Illinois. I was there to learn how to drive one of these behemoths. And if anyone could teach me, it would be Mentz. He's an 11-time world champion 
and the first person to land a monster truck backflip in competition. What is the, like the, the best performance that a TV reporter has done on day one with this? Boy, you know, it's a, it's a big learning curve. While Mentz was looking to manage my expectations, I was looking to prove I was worthy of driving Gravedigger in a real event. Is there some sort of a, I don't know, like a test I have to pass for you to feel comfortable turning me loose in a real Monster Jam event? I have to see the way you can drive and I have to see how you listen and the way you progress throughout the day. How important is the helmet to this whole operation? How important is your brain? The progression happened faster than I was expecting. All right, good. Stop right there. Stop. From simple laps. Check it out, a little faster. To a drag race start. To the thing I did not know was part of the deal going in. The actual jumping of an actual monster truck. Is it possible that if I do this right, I'll actually time travel? Yes. The key to staying alive, explained Coach Tom Mentz, was total commitment. Now, I'm not saying I was terrified, but if you pause the tape right here, you can actually see me closing my eyes mid-jump. It was a real Jesus-take-the-wheel moment. And after landing and forgetting to take my foot off the gas, and accidentally going off part of another jump and rolling the truck over. All right, Luke, are you all right? I'd apparently proven that I was ready, or crazy enough, to drive the real grave digger. Yeah, I'm good. Well, I committed to it anyway. It started uh, 36 years ago, and um, it was really just a fluke. It wasn't a plan. In a certain way, I had Dennis Anderson to thank for all of this, since he invented Gravedigger over three decades ago in Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. I worked at a local farm operations, was working in a granary, and my goal in life was to be a farmer. But in his spare time, Anderson liked to race old trucks in the mud, mudboggin', as it's known, and he noticed something. If he took the tires off of a farm tractor and put them on his truck, he couldn't be beat. And then I was king of the mud hole. Everywhere I went with old Gravedigger, you know, I was the man to beat. Eventually, Anderson moved out of the mud bogs and into regional tractor poles and demolition derbies, and the crowds loved it. I think it's just the mystique of the the spooky paint job and the red headlights and just driving it like a madman because, you know, I always wanted this image of an evil truck with a good guy image. And it worked. These days, Anderson sits atop a grave digger empire, complete with multiple trucks, a state-of-the-art engine shop, a bustling gift shop, and even a diner called Diggers. Could I get you guys started with something to drink? which is where his daughter, Kristen Anderson, works. That is, when she isn't wowing crowds as one of eight gravedigger drivers who compete all over the country and the world. It is kind of funny that people do recognize me or they'll say that I look familiar or something like that, but it happens a lot. At least happens like a few times a day. People come in here and get pictures with me, which is actually really cool, you know, because I'm not used to that. Anderson's sons are also drivers, champions in their own right. And the trucks they drive are faster, 
jump higher and are thankfully, speaking for myself here, much safer than the original models. And all at the low, low cost these days of a quarter million dollars per truck. Worldwide, millions of fans attend Monster Jam events from Saudi Arabia to China to Tampa. That's where I found myself getting ready to live out a childhood dream. This is uh, fireproof, right? Finally, the big moment had arrived. Monster Jam fans from CBS Sunday morning. This is Luke Burbank, 8th grade digger. Okay, I, I know what you're thinking. The guy from the TV show is going really slow in that monster truck. And okay, I kind of was. But they are very hard to drive. You have to steer the front and the rear wheels independently. There are like 20 switches that need switching while you're driving. And honestly, I was just trying to not break a quarter million dollar vehicle. Before I knew it, it was all over. I'd survived, and maybe more importantly, so had the truck. Had I dazzled the crowd in Tampa? Not really, but that was okay. The real Monster Jam drivers were just getting started, and they'd have everyone on the edge of their seats. The tale of Harlem's Dapper Dan is a rags-to-riches saga three-quarters of a century in the making, as told to us by Michelle Miller. He's known as Dapper Dan, and not long ago on fashion's biggest night, he was center stage. I can't figure out how it happened, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't want to know how it happened. You know, the Met Gala is like, it's the World Series of Fashion. Met Gala host Anna Wintour even gave him his own table, which he filled with some major star power decked out in his designs, including models Carly Kloss and Ashley Graham and actress Regina Hall. You got people who don't get invited, and I got my own table? That's huge. Yes, it was. That's huge. Like that. That looks really cool. We caught up with model Ashley Graham at a fitting just before the gala. There's so much history in what I'm wearing and also pride in, in the man behind it. We're gonna open this up. I know a little bit about the Met. It's kind of been like a little bit of, of a club mm -hmm. and Dap hasn't always been in the club. He's had to make his own rules and now he's in the club. What was your childhood like here? Very poor. Born Daniel Day in Harlem, he says his parents struggled. You know, I was born at the bottom, so anything that I get is a blessing. You know, I was born, I had to learn how to steal, steal clothes, go in supermarkets, steal food. Right this here. is your store. He details his rags to riches story in a new memoir, which also chronicles his days as a drug dealer and hustler. He saw clothing as a way out. Nothing transforms a person quicker than a garment. 
Nothing quicker. I, you put on nice clothes no matter how poor you are or where you come from, and you go downtown, you're just like them. He first sold his clothes out of the trunk of his car and opened a store in 1982. These are some of his early outfits. He took the logos from luxury designers and printed them on leather. Get the inspiration? From one concept to a new concept, you build around that. And that's what the logo was. He then sold these one-of-a-kind offerings. Louis Vuitton wasn't doing it, Gucci wasn't doing it, Fendi wasn't doing it. Nobody was selling men clothes and women clothes with prints all over it. Did you know this is trademark? Did you know it, like that was kind of like a no-no? Well, okay, let's put it like this. Okay. I had to be able to sell what they were selling, but making it better than they made it. So the answer to your question, mm -hmm. yes, I knew it was the wrong <laughs> thing to do, but it was my creativity. He built an unlikely empire. Celebrities like LL Cool J and Salt and Peppa wore him. But the designers he knocked off eventually came knocking with an assist from federal marshals. And they had a court paper saying, we have, we have the right to take anything with our logo. that our logo on it in the store. And they broke me. Dapper Dan went back to selling clothes on the street. I had to swallow my pride and start back with a table like this again. I went from a table to a three-story building, back to a table. But in 2017, all that changed. Gucci unveiled a jacket nearly identical to one of Dapper Dan's designs. But get this, they didn't give him credit. That created an uproar on Twitter. Gucci made amends, and believe it or not, has now teamed up with Dapper Dan to create high fashion. It's a relationship he doesn't take lightly. Earlier this year, when Gucci released a controversial sweater, Dapper Dan, who wasn't involved in the design, demanded answers. So you recognized that that was right a blackface? Right away, right away. So you saw it? No, I recognized that this could be construed as an affront to my culture. The sweater was pulled, and while some called for a company boycott, Dapper Dan says he had a better idea. My intention is to get the most important people of color in that room with them so we can have a dialogue and you explain what you did and how you're going to fix it. Whether he's enlightening a multi-billion dollar company. Don't think you're going to master this game without doing any homework. Or young fashion hopefuls in his Harlem atelier. How y'all doing? Dapper Dan is grateful for his second chance. It's a miracle that keeps happening. The same year I get a close partnership with Gucci. I get a book deal with Random House. I say, if I'm dreaming and somebody wake me up and they, they pinch me and wake me up, I'm killing them. <laughs> For one very hard worker, the secret to a long active life is quite simply in the bag. Here's Steve Hartman. When you reach a certain age, just getting down to the driveway can feel like a full day's work. But for 97-year-old Benny Facito of Perth Amboy, New Jersey, overcoming those stairs is just the beginning of his workday. What the whole time is up here? 
two days a week he clocks in for a four-hour shift. There it is. His job? Oh, good morning, hon. Fag boy at the local stop and shop. See that? Yeah, nice, I do it. Benny used to be a warehouse supervisor for a cosmetics company. Thank you. You're welcome. He supposedly retired back in the 80s, but he's been doing odd jobs ever since because he says he loves a hard day's work and always has. What was your first job you ever had? Who, me? Yeah. A shoe shine job. We had a shoe shine when I was young. At what age? Seven or so. So you shine shoes, then what did you do? Then I go home. No, what was your next job? I went to barber school. Okay. After that, I went to the Army. Benny served in the Army Air Force during World War II. He was a gunner on a B-25 Mitchell bomber, flying mostly over Northern Africa and Italy. Today, his Italian casualties are far less consequential. <laughs> but he still approaches his job with that same tireless, warrior-like determination. For example, Benny says he'd sooner stack a honeydew on white bread than loaf around on the job. I don't take no breaks. No breaks? No breaks. Benny will not take a break. Never? Never take a break. That's the boss man. Mike Moss is the assistant manager. What if you went up to him right now and said, Benny, it's break time? He'll yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that the hard way. I don't want it. Take I a break. Take a load off. I don't want to stop. Don't tell me how to work. See the light on? That's where I'm going. When I pressed Benny on this, he said something really interesting. He said, why would I take a break when I only get to work four hours? He actually put it that way. I only get to work four hours as if bagging groceries was some kind of privilege bestowed upon him. I get a feeling that I did something good. Mm -hmm. You can't just stand around like an idiot. You have to have a reason to keep alive. You're welcome, sir. For Benny, that reason is to go out and earn, not just a paycheck, but a purpose. He says you need to contribute at all times and avoid breaks take a break? at all costs. You go sit down. No, I don't want to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To travel down the Mississippi is to gain a new appreciation of America and its history. This morning, Mo Rocca journeys to the Great River's humble beginnings. The mighty Mississippi rises gently here at its headwaters in northern Minnesota before meandering past Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and empties into the Gulf of Mexico, 10 states, 2,318 miles. And it all begins here, some 200 miles northwest of Minneapolis, more kiddie pool than storied Colossus. How's it feel? It feels great. I know, isn't it? Especially when it's 87 degrees, it feels wonderful. Why did I wait so long? I, I don't know. That's what a lot of people say. Why did I wait so long to discover the Mississippi at its beginning? Connie Cox is head naturalist at Itasca State Park at the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Now that I got you in the river, what we actually have to do is we have to go from the east side of the Mississippi and walk across to the west. And as we're going, you need to make a wish because it is told that in 90 days, your wish will come true. Because in 90 days is when this water will reach the Gulf of Mexico. There's no way to understand American history from the very beginning to right up to now 
without understanding the river. Paul Schneider is a historian of the Mississippi. Probably like everyone who didn't grow up on the Mississippi, my early impression was probably reading Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn. Mark Twain's Mississippi, alive with steamboats, scalawags, and gamblers, has a hold on us still. The river for him becomes this place where all walks of American life come and intersect and cross and are changed by going in and out of it. But today's adventurers, like Eddie Harris, know the river has new stories to tell. Why can't we talk about the river as the modern invention or the modern entity that it is? Eddie has taken his canoe down the length of the Mississippi River twice. It's still seriously important economically and culturally, musically, all sorts of ways. And it's just a, a beautiful piece of nature. He was 29 the first time, with next to no experience with boats. Along the, the upper, upper river, before the river turns into anything, when it's still a real small stream, I began to feel comfortable and I loved it. There are calm days and danger days, and there are days when the river just won't let you move at all. 30 years later, Eddie took up his paddle again to make a documentary. Suddenly you round this bend, and boom, Minneapolis is right in front of you. And southward it flows, past Iowa and Illinois. We caught up with Eddie 500 miles downriver, near his hometown of St. Louis. Were you ever afraid of the river? Uh, probably, because we were definitely warned about it. The warning was, don't even look at it because the whirlpool will hypnotize you and suck you in and you will drown and die and you'll never be heard of again. Continue drifting down past Tennessee and Arkansas. We've been 1,500 miles so far and we have about uh, 450 miles left. And you're deep in the lower Mississippi where the river is nearly a mile wide and where we found writer Rinker Buck another modern-day river rat. This is based on an 1846 flatboat design that I saw in a painting. There's no photographs then. Not long ago, he built a 19th-century-style flatboat. The boat weighs uh, eight tons. And navigated it from Pittsburgh, down the Ohio River, and into the Mississippi. This is a pretty placid stretch here because it's just basically a straightaway. But when you get into the real sharp bends, uh, it can be a little bit more complicated. Rinker steered us towards Natchez, Mississippi, a center of trade for the pre-Civil War South's slave-based economy. That house right up there, the Briars, is where Jefferson Davis was married. Probably the wealthiest community in America right there. That's where all the cotton was coming out when cotton was king. Today, its mansions, built by slaves, are tourist attractions. So this is Longwood, one of the grandest mansions ever built in Natchez. Scott Smith, who goes by Jimmy the Cricket, showed us Longwood Mansion, begun in 1859 and never finished. This does not disappoint. Look at that. Nothing else like it on earth. Natchez's days as a bustling port long ago receded, but the river itself remains as vital as ever. Regardless of what the rules of the road are, the reality is I need to give way to him. Ordinarily, processions of massive barges carry oil and gas, corn, rice, soybeans, and wheat upriver and down. How important 
is the Mississippi River today to the American economy. 60% of our agricultural product goes down the Mississippi. As much as 30% of our petroleum product either delivered upstream or downstream down the Mississippi. So the Mississippi River is not just a pretty waterway or relic, something you learn about in fourth grade history. It is the economic lifeblood of the country. A lifeblood regularly threatened, most recently just a few weeks ago. As the raging Mississippi flooded farmlands and river towns. Now on this part of the wall, in some areas, there are 10 feet of water. From Minnesota to Louisiana, bringing barge traffic to a standstill. This year is a, was a generational flood, likely for many people who were impacted, the worst flooding that they've ever experienced. At the National Water Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Tom Graziano and his team hope to predict future floods with greater accuracy by analyzing past disasters, like the Great Flood of 1927. Thousands are fleeing as the waters of the Bayou Tesh burst through the restraining wall. And the Great Flood of 1993. 700 of Grafton's thousand residents have been evacuated. 85% of the town is underwater. And then there was the time way back in 1881 when the river ended up changing course and the town of Kaskaskia, Illinois ended up on the Missouri side. The Army Corps of Engineers spends billions of dollars a year trying to keep the Mississippi from wreaking havoc. But, says historian Paul Schneider, there's only so much man can do to control it. When it's not at its absolute wildest, it behaves the way the Army Corps of Engineers in particular and the navigation industry need it to behave. But it has not been tamed. No taming for this mighty, mesmerizing river. Does the Mississippi River get the credit it deserves? No, no, I think most Americans have forgotten about it. And it's not just its role in commerce, it's its role in the imagination and in the American mind. I think the Mississippi represents the power and the majesty of the USA. All of the characteristics that we want to give to this country, I think we can find inside the Mississippi River. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.